Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. This is the the day after, of course, uh, we learned that the uh, former president of the United States is telling associates that uh, he expects to be uh, reinstated as president in August. I'm sorry to laugh about this. You know, look, I, I know a lot of you think that we should just ignore him. And, and I think, you know, part of it is, is that a lot of the uh, Democrats and progressives, you, you live in your own media universe and you assume that because Donald Trump is not on Twitter, he's not on social media, that he's invisible. But but he's, he is out there and he is a big figure uh, in the, the right wing media ecosystem. And uh, I, I'm seeing one report that uh, Maggie Haberman uh, was uh, was on CNN saying that uh, Trump is in the business of uh, or is, is going about trying to pressure uh, right-wing media figures to uh, begin amplifying his the the whole narrative that the election was stolen. So he's putting pressure on them. I'm not I'm not sure how much pressure you need to put on some of these folks. Uh, meanwhile, apparently he is going to be making an appearance of some kind here in my home state of Wisconsin. We are so proud. Uh, the Mike Lindell rally that he's holding coming up in a couple of weeks. Apparently, he's going to make a live appearance via what they're calling a jumbotron, probably a, you know, 50-inch television or something. But uh, it's it, it's all, it is kind of interesting where the president now spends his time with my pillow guy, Sheriff David Clark, Dinesh D'Souza, and all of, uh, and, and, and all of that. Uh, meanwhile, you know, we, we haven't, we haven't heard from um, woke Joe Walsh in a, in a while. Uh, I, many of you remember him as a former congressman, a very, uh, very much a, a conservative firebrand who was a longtime conservative talk show host and stuck with it. Maybe the only uh, outspokenly anti-Trump conservative radio host because there's just basically no business model. And in the last week, he lost that that job as well, which. I think it was in some ways predictable, but uh, here's here's Joe Walsh. Uh, I think I think this is uh, an appearance that he made on CNN, and of course, as usual with Joe, he's not mincing any words about uh, his former political party. You're painting this picture that if you want to be in conservative media today, you can't be honest, but instead you have to, as you put it, kiss Trump's feet all day. Do you believe your party is moving toward fascism? Oh, it's Pam. It's there. Uh, I left the I'm a lifelong Republican. I left the party a year ago because it has become an authoritarian embracing cult. Uh, it is fascist. I mean, my God, look where we are right now, Pam. Just this past week, uh, the Republicans decided they did not want to investigate an attack on our government a few months ago. Why? Because that would have angered their cult leader. Doesn't matter where you stand on the issues, Pam. I'm still a conservative, uh, have always been, but that doesn't matter in today's Republican Party. You're either with you. Trump or you're not. Yeah, I think that's pretty self self evident. Uh, the other, but the only problem with the whole Republican Party is fascist is that they're also playing this victim card. I suppose that's not contradictory, but I, I just I just had to play this little soundbite from uh, Eric Trump. Uh, who uh, is really playing the victim card rather aggressively in this appearance on, you, you guessed, at Fox News. Sean, I agree completely. Listen, I'm on the receiving end of it every single day. My father gets subpoena after subpoena. We do as a family. They attack us. They go after us for doing absolutely nothing wrong. We gave up business when my father went to the White House. 
Wow, I just, you can hear like a thousand tiny violins just playing with this. Well, I suppose the good news is the subpoenas are coming. Um, th this is something that you need to keep in mind with all of the other spin, that there are these uh, these legal challenges. Okay, speaking of legal challenges, we need to dive into what's actually going on while Republicans are moving so aggressively to memory hole what happened on January 6th. The criminal cases continue to move ahead. And the one guy who has been bird dogging this and has really become my source of, uh, of information about what's going on with the prosecution of the actual insurrectionist is Scott McFarlane, who is an investigative reporter with NBC Washington and a contributor to MSNBC. Scott, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it very much. Hey, Charlie, you got the best podcast in America. It's an honor. Well, thank you. So this is like your thing now, just before we get into it. I mean, this, this is your beat. You are monitoring all of these cases that have come out of the January 6th insurrection. Correct. I'm drink, drinking out of a fire hose. I mean, there's 460 cases and they're all fluid and they're all moving. So to, to bird dog these, it's a full-time job. But yeah, I took this on voluntarily because when I watched it happen as a former congressional staffer, as somebody who covered Congress for 20 years, it, nothing else matters until we get to the bottom of this. Nothing else matters to me until we figure out who ordered this, whose idea was it, who funded it, who are these people and who are they going to flip? Now, will we find the answers to those questions in these criminal cases? I mean, you raise an interesting question. Most of these, of course, are then are having to be narrowly focused on the specific defendants and their specific actions. So are we going to get at the end of this process that kind of global picture about who knew what, when, who ordered what, who inspired what? We're only going to get it through these court cases, Charlie. You'll note that since January 6th, almost 150 days, there's been a total of zero press conferences from the U.S. Capitol Police explaining yeah. what happened that day. Zero press conferences from the U.S. Justice Department, which, oh, by the way, is handling the biggest criminal investigation in American history right now. So the only answers are from the court filings and the federal government when they submit these court filings, Charlie, they make news in subtle, small ways. You know, on page 28, in a footnote, um, in, in a brief argument before the judge at a, at a status hearing. So we have to watch every hearing. We have to read every filing. Um, for, you know, for an investigative reporter, this is kind of the way we like doing business. We like to be the people who unearth the scoop or unearth the, the big get for the day. It's just alarming that we have to do it on something so important. Okay, I, I want to get to a bigger picture in a moment, but I got a tweet today that is just sort of, I just had to start with all of this. You had two tweets. One, a defense lawyer handling some of these cases uh, told you that, uh, I'm going to read your tweet, tells me a few defendants in the D.C. jail have formed the most uninformed jailhouse lawyers group you can imagine. So how... Uh, how how strong is the crazy in the jailhouse? Oh, it's pretty crazy. It's pretty strong. I, 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 here's what I'm told. The, the D.C. jail is not commenting on January 6th cases. They've been stifled by the Justice Department, which is fine. But the defense lawyers are talking, and they say that the, the January 6th defendants who are locked up, and this is going to be the people facing the worst of the worst allegations, which is why they're locked up pre-trial, that they've been segregated. From the rest of the population, I suspect they're not terribly popular with the rest of the population. So they're together. And being together is particularly dangerous for people with no experience, no criminal pasts, 
no idea how the criminal justice system works, no idea how the D.C. jail works or the D.C. federal court. So they've kind of started talking together. And defense lawyers are frustrated for two reasons. First of all, because they're sharing all kinds of bad information, have no idea what the hell they're talking about. But also, a lot of these defendants in the D.C. jail, according to the defense lawyers I'm talking to, think Donald Trump's going to swoop in and save them. And that there's no need to cut a plea. There's no need to cooperate, participate, or be real vibrant with their defense because Trump's going to bail them out. Okay, how how is this going to happen? You, you know, you 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 say the same attorney tells me the plea negotiations are going to be this huge challenge because the defendants think that Trump is going to save them. So, do some of them believe that he's going to become president again? That there's going to be a coup and he's going to pardon them? Do they think he's going to write a check? What do they think? How does how does Trump save them? Probably a mix of all those things, but this is the irony. This is the rich irony of the last few weeks. The more Donald Trump talks, the more he tells people he's coming back to office in August, the more that he continues to you know, deny the validity of the election, the more difficult he's making it for these defendants. The judges are being explicit. They have concerns about releasing some of the more violent defendants, those who are accused of more violent crimes, because they're worried about what Donald Trump's saying, that he's going to cause them to act out again, to commit another crime. Because if he denies the election, and if he is, in one judge's words, the sole source of information for an insurrection defendant, it's dangerous to release the insurrection defendant to somebody who continues to wage war against the truth. So the judges have explicitly linked Trump's continuing big lie with these cases. Yes. I mean, the judges are saying there's a risk of the big lie being perpetuated and releasing defendants who believe it, defendants who are accused of insurrection the first time they heard the lie. So this is complicating matters for the defendants. And I think the defense lawyers probably shiver every time they hear or see a post from Donald Trump's blog. So let, let, let's just talk about who these these folks are and, and the extent of the investigation. This is a massive investigation. I think we find out through these court filings how much of the social media they've been able to access, phone records, uh, all, all of this. A lot of the evidence, and I think this is pretty well known, a lot of the evidence um, is relatively easily obtained because many of the insurrectionists have bragged about it. They put they put pictures of themselves or information about what they did up on their social media sites. Is, is, is yeah, that one of the main sources of information, or are there others as well? This, these charging documents, they're almost like they're trolling the defendants. The defendant says on his own Facebook page, I was there. It was the greatest day ever. Um, you know, we, we, we took over the Capitol. Don't let anybody tell you it was Antifa. It was us. Uh, this is simple. This is color by numbers for the federal prosecutors in some cases because they had access to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Parler, or they've gone the search warrant route and gotten access to prior Facebook posts that some of the defendants, after the insurrection, decided to delete, recognizing this may not be good to have you know remaining up on my Facebook page. Uh, I'll note, of all these cases, the ones we're watching most closely are the ones of the Oath Keepers mm-hmm. as the far-right group that is alleged to have you know, conspired on the 6th and Charlie conspired ahead of the 6th, you know, brought military gear, had encrypted communications, used a military stack formation to breach the Capitol doors and breach the police line. The Oath Keepers are alleged to have 
known to, according to the prosecutors, encrypt their communication so as not to get caught. But I'll see yesterday, the feds handed down a new indictment against some of the Oath Keepers, charging them with yet another crime, with deleting their Facebook posts, Mm. their Facebook profiles, their phone videos, and their phone images. That's a federal crime, and that's another charge they're facing. Now, you've you've also reported, though, that you think the plea deals are coming for the Oath Keepers because the case is just too large. There's too many of them. Talk to me about what what is likely to happen, because they are among the most dangerous of the actors, among among a a lot of dangerous actors here. But the Oath Keepers do seem to stand out. And you just described some of those those documents in which um, they really did sound they they were quite serious about uh, and they used terms like insurrection and bloody civil war, et cetera. So what, what, t- talk to me about plea deals and what the prospects are. Yeah, that's this is the case to watch. The oath keepers are the heart of the action right now. There are 16 oath keeper defendants all in the same case, all uh, accused of being part of that you know coordinated conspiracy effort to prepare not just for the six, but to have armed, you know, quick reaction forces staged in Virginia where the gun laws are looser, you know, putting firearms in a hotel room in Boston, Virginia, in case Donald Trump invoked the Insurrection Act. They'd have an armed second wave. This was some next level coordinated planning the feds are alleging. The Oath Keepers also have links to Roger Stone. Some of the Oath Keepers charged or, you know, were reportedly or allegedly, you know, private security for Roger Stone at one point in their lives or one point recently in their lives. The Oath Keepers face the most serious charges, and the Oath Keepers are the only people who have secured a signed plea deal so far. 460 defendants, only one person has signed the paperwork to plead guilty, an accused Oath Keeper named John Schaefer of Indiana. He's been given, by the way, witness protection, and he's been required to provide full cooperation for his plea deal. And during a hearing yesterday for the other 16 defendants, the prosecutors openly said they expect to hand over plea offers in the next month or two. They're not saying that in other cases. So you got to read the tea leaves here. The feds have made the Oath Keepers their priority, in part, I would think, because they face the most serious charges. But also, when you secure a plea deal, with a federal defendant, your goal as a prosecutor is to get them to flip. Who can they give us? What can they give us? The Oath Keepers, I think what the prosecutors think, can give them something of value. You know, you, you mentioned the, you know, the stacking of the, the stocking up of the guns uh, in, in a place where the gun laws were, were, were looser. Uh, our colleague Amanda Carpenter has been reading through your stuff, and she says one thing that stands out about reading all the messages from the Oath Keeper folks uh, is how they kept cautioning each other not to bring guns to D.C. that day because of the D.C. gun laws. And you have to ask yourself, what would have happened if they all did? Um, first of all, number one, proving that the gun laws actually worked in D.C. Because, I mean, how often are we told that yeah. only criminals follow the law? Um, but but obviously, I do keep thinking about how close this came to be really horrific. Remember the story of that officer, Fanon? Was he the one who yeah. uh, they were they were trying to get his gun, you know, take his gun from him and, and kill he, him with his own gun? Yeah. Well, and and these officers had to make the decision that if they used their weapons, if they fired uh, the, their weapons, what would have happened? I mean, you could have had dozens of people who were killed because there were, in fact, guns present on the ca- in the Capitol, weren't there? And that, that's the thing that ticks me off the most when you hear you know members of the U.S. Senate saying it didn't look like an armed insurrection to me. A simple Google search will show at least two defendants, at least two, have specifically been charged with carrying on their person in the mob. 
So we, we, we know the allegations are specifically of an armed insurrection. In fact, one of the two who's charged with having a gun in his person when he was in the mob is also accused of having 11 Molotov cocktails in his pickup truck and a whole cache of weapons there too. So this was, to a degree, an armed insurrection based on what we've seen charged so far. But more strikingly, and I adore Amanda, and I'm really glad she picked up on that, they are clearly planning according to the charging documents, for D.C.'s gun law and how to work around it. Hmm. Stage the weapons at the city limits. Go back and get them once Trump invokes the Insurrection Act and all these laws, these gun laws are moot. I mean, there is a preparation, according to the charging documents, for guns to be near and in this mob. And so why don't D.C. police open fire on the mob with their firearms? Any number of reasons. Uh, you can think of they wouldn't want to do that. Sure. Not the right. least of which is they're outnumbered and they don't know how many people are carrying on the other side. So this this story becomes so so dystopian. And I think some people have a hard time understanding. Okay, you're talking about these patriotic pro-police, we back the blue, Trump supporting types, and yet they are prepared to bring weapons into DC. Who were they prepared to shoot? I mean, I guess this is part of the thing. All of this, this gun cosplay, you know, cosplay that they they, they engage in, uh, you know, shedding of the blood of tyrants. Are they talking about shooting soldiers, National Guardsmen, Capitol Police officers, D.C. police officers? Who? Oh, that's a really good question. In some of the, um, the in some of what we've seen filed in the federal courts, we see the defendants accused of, of, of having guns or, or wanting guns or wanting to attack. They're worried about Antifa, they say. They need to have the guns or they need to have the, the bear spray or they have to have the, 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 the shields to fight off Antifa. Okay. I mean, there's been no evidence Antifa was there and anybody saying Antifa was there is, 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 is going against what some of the accused insurrectionists say, which is don't let them tell you it's Antifa. It's us. But the police got a real bad welcome on site from these back the blue insurrectionists. I mean, there is one defendant who appeared um, in court Tuesday, Wednesday morning, uh, this morning in DC. And he's trying to get bond to get released from jail. According to the, to the, what the feds say, when the DC police arrived, when DC police arrived that day to help out, this accused insurrectionist told the officers, you're outnumbered. There's a million of us here. Why don't you go listen to Trump, your boss and step away. And some called the officers pigs. Some called the officers traitors and more vulgar things than that. So whatever backed the blue force there was in this mob wasn't backing the blue. It was very interesting. The Washington Post has a report this morning uh, that uh, 20 Republican senators uh, declined or didn't get around to meeting with the uh, the Sicknick family, which had wanted to talk with Republican senators before the January 6th commission vote. You know, they had scheduling problems. They had to you know, get their hair done or something. But they uh, interesting that, that a party that is backing the blue just couldn't make time to talk with a family of a dead police officer from from January 6th. Speaking of, OK, speaking of these defendants, um, you, you had an interesting item that a lot of these defendants are really rolling, you know, are, are raking in big bucks um, that they're actually 
leveraging their role uh, to raise money for themselves. And this is part of the, you know, they are the victims that somehow, and, and we're even seeing this on, you know, people like, you know, Tucker Carlson on Fox News, they're mainstreaming this idea that somehow, uh, you know, that they are being oppressed or that they're being harassed or persecuted. So talk to me a little bit about the fundraising by some of the insurrectionists. This this probably shouldn't come as a surprise to us, but they're raking in insane gobs of money for their legal defenses from people all across the country. Uh, I, I got a heads up on this from a, a, a partner of mine who, who's a newspaper man in Alabama, down in Arab, Alabama. He says, you know the guy from Arab, Alabama who's charged with the Oath Keepers? He's got a legal defense fund on one of those websites. It's already got nearly a quarter million dollars raised, and it, it's not from people who put their name on it. It's from anonymous donors. Um He's his wife set up one of those, you know, raise money for my husband websites. And it's just it's just a torrent of money. But more interesting to me is a different guy from Alabama named Richard Barnett. This is the guy you'll recall, Mm -hmm. Charlie, who had his feet up on the desk Mm -hmm. and uh, left a vulgar note for Nancy Pelosi and took some mail, according to the prosecutors. He has his own website and his attorney was doing the rounds um, trying to get awareness for the website. And he did an interview on Newsmax. And after the interview with the website, I went to look at it and it's quite something. Barnett is, you know, gives his whole biography of how, you know, telling us how great a man he is, what a family man he is, how he unfortunately and, and inexplicably lost his job after his arrest for the insurrection. <laughs> but here's what I saw that, that, that really caught my eye. He's willing to sell autographed photos of himself with his feet on the desk. For a hundred dollars, you donate a hundred bucks to his legal fund. You get an autographed photo of him with his feet on the desk in Pelosi's office. This is wow. what it's come to, and I, I, I'm not sure he's allowed to sell a professional photo with, with his signature on it. But I know there are buyers out there. You just have oh, to know. absolutely. I mean, you know, and the perfect gift for you know somebody who has everything. You know, if you have a, a MAGA friend, I mean, imagine Father's Day is coming. Exactly. Father's Day is coming. So how many of these defendants are using the, I've I've seen scattered reports, are using the Trump, Trump made me do it. Trump told me to do it. Um, This seems to come up a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, the defense lawyers are doing that too. In fact, there was a a case of a man, I believe he's from New Mexico, um, who's started to mount his defense, but his lawyer took a different approach and told the judge during one of the initial hearings in the case before it was time to say such things that you know, my client was you know, suffering from foxitis, that he, uh, <laughs> he, he, he was never a political guy, never liked Fox News, but moved in with some people. And all of a sudden now, you know, he's, he's into Fox and he just you know, was fed some bad information. And we'll see where that goes. I mean, I, I, he's, he's, I'm sorry, he's from Delaware. I just checked my notes. Um, Anthony Antonio suffers foxitis and has too much Trump in his brain um, based on what his defense lawyers told the court. Yeah, you're going to hear more of that, that this was somebody following you know, a president's guide to, 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 that the election was rigged, the election was fraudulent. We'll see where that heads. I, I'm, I'm almost more interested in the people who, who celebrate it and can raise money. I mean, you can yeah. raise enormous amounts of money for your legal defense fund. I don't even know what the restrictions are and how you spend it. 
Uh, I don't. I don't know either. Now, earlier in the in the in, in our discussion, you mentioned that uh, that every time that Trump uh, doubles down on the big lie, it makes it actually uh, harder for the defendants because the judges are watching this, and you know, take a real you know jaundiced view of all of this. Um, our, our our producer Jim Swift is is standing by, and I, it, there's there's a breaking news story which I'm maybe you can explain to me, Jim. That former President Trump's blog, this this web page that he'd been sharing statements after he'd been banned from Facebook and Twitter, the that this is the from the desk of Donald J. Trump blog. It's been scrubbed from the website and won't be returning. Yeah, uh, do, do, what's the what's that about? Do you know what? what why? It it lasted. Uh, as somebody said uh, almost a couple scaramuchis. Um, but, uh, Trump aide, serial philanderer and all around bad, uh, man, Jason Miller said that the defunct blog, uh, that has been scrubbed from the webpage quote was auxiliary to the broader efforts, uh, we have been, we have, and are working on, um, and, uh, don't get, don't get this confused with the social media, uh, thing that, you know, the NRCC and the NRSC have been, you know, texting, MAGA supporters for for months and months about you know don't don't get those two things confused. The blog is not the social media network, as Kimberly Guilfoyle would say. The best is yet to come. Okay, I, that's just that's that's just weird. I, hey, thanks, Jim. I mean, that was just that sort of popped up there, and it's 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 hard to, it's hard to keep track of what the president is saying. Maybe the the fact that he wasn't limited to two hundred eighty characters was too stressful. Okay, so so Scott, doubling back on on the on the cops and, you know, backing the, the blue and the lack of press conferences. Um, t- 10 Capitol police officers are still off the job with injuries from this, aren't they? Is, is that, is yeah. that what we've learned from these violence? 10? That's our latest reporting. That's from a multiple sources inside the police department who told me that we're at 10 right now. Um, the injuries were serious. I mean, the, 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 the trauma is, is one thing, but the physical injuries will keep these officers off the job perhaps for quite a while. I, I just think it's reprehensible that when we have a, a, a moment this significant in American history, that we don't get a press conference and questions right. answered from the police department or the justice department. Don't get it. Okay. I, I, I don't get it either. Um, and, and let's just put this in context that every time that there is a, a major incident, a shooting of any kind, there's usually a press briefing that day and multiple days, as long as it is in the news and, and, we have all of these injuries, and I can't recall any briefing whatsoever. So, wh- why? What's going on? I'm I'm just not sure. I don't get it. Part of it is the lack of transparency in Congress. I mean, Congress, as you know, you know, was, was wise enough or crafty enough to exempt themselves from their own Freedom of Information Act law that when they passed it. That, that's true for Congress and for their police department. They they don't have to answer reporter questions. They don't have to provide right. public records or Freedom of Information Act requests. They are they can muzzle themselves and they're not breaking any laws. Our local police departments can't do that. I mean, if you want to get a police report, go down to the police station, you can get one. You want the police to, to give you some records, send them an email, send them a letter. They have to do it. Capitol Police don't. And I think they're leaning on that to not have to answer hard questions about, well, what did you all do wrong in advance of January 6th? What did you all do right? They don't want to give out secrets. They don't want to give out, you know, acknowledge failures. So they don't answer any questions. And so that leaves it to us to try to piece together a puzzle that should be put together for us by the people who are in charge. 
Well, why would Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, who run Congress, not say, hey, we run Congress. We want you to be more transparent. I mean, so, at, 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 at some point, is this a decision that they have made or acquiesced in? Subtly, that's happening. Um, go lower down the totem pole. If you go to the Democratic chair of the subcommittee in the House with oversight over Capitol Police, he's saying he's going to withhold funds or he's, he's, he's leveraging his spot in the Appropriations Committee, I should say, to get Capitol Police to have more press conferences and to be more open about answering questions from Congress and the public. So that's starting to happen, but it's a process. It's probably a glacially slow process. There are politics there. I mean, it's hard for the, the, the House or Senate to pass anything right now, including a January 6th commission, much less changing the infrastructure and the operations of the police department. But what's more, there are relationships there. I mean, these members, their staffers have relationships with police. So making changes doesn't always go over well and it can damage relationships. It's the same process that gets everything else stuck in the mud in Congress. Okay, so there's been a number of developments of, about the the people who've been charged. They're not all in jail. Some of them are being released. Uh, I saw the report about uh, the woman who was accused of stealing Nancy Pelosi's computer. Apparently, what she's been uh, allowed time off for job hunting by the judge. Is that what's going on there? She's freed, freed from home confinement? I'm gobsmacked by that one. Uh, to, to, to answer your first question, um, 90% of the defendants in these cases are free from jail pending trial. Only the most serious cases are the defendants being held. The woman you referred to is Riley Williams of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. She was the one who was accused of taking that computer from Nancy Pelosi's office and of kind of directing, guiding the mob through the Capitol that day. She was released on home confinement, but she's apparently getting a little restless in home confinement because she asked the court for permission to leave the house from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. every day to go look for employment. She uh, complained about her phone bill and her car bill and wants to get a job. The court um, didn't give her that. They said you can leave the house for a few hours on Thursdays and Fridays to go find a job. And, and I'm not judging that decision. I'm just wondering what the court's allowing her to leave a couple hours, two days a week to find a job is going to do for her if she gets a job. <laughs> she would presumably have to leave more often than that. So well, everybody's, fighting pre-trial, everybody's fighting pretrial detention, and that's what's bulking up all these court cases. Everybody's going to court every day trying to either get released, change their release. This is moving so slow. Charlie, there's no way any of this goes to trial before 2022 at the earliest. Really? Now, some of the cases have uh, have been dropped, right? I mean, there, there was there was one of the cases, there was this uh, guy from New York that they, they decided they didn't have enough evidence against him. I mean, so, so how many, give me a, some sense of how many of the cases are proceeding, how many of they decided, okay, this guy may, might have been just a bystander or we just don't have enough evidence with just the one that's the only one that's been dropped it was dropped um tuesday against the man from new york uh, the feds i think indicated in their filings they didn't have quite the evidence they needed to move forward with the prosecution i've already seen another defendant file a motion for dismissal citing that case saying we you don't have enough evidence in mind either he's one of those uh, county commissioners from new mexico who was charged um, we'll see more try to get dismissed, but that was that's kind of the unicorn, Charlie. Everything else is moving forward, but you have to manage expectations. These are going to go slowly. They're going to move. It, you can measure these cases better by months or years than by days or weeks. So why is it slow since we have so much video and audio and social yeah. media evidence? 
two big reasons. First of all, the courts are acting are, are operating at limited capacity still because of COVID. I mean, they they are they're ramping up operations again. There are you know jurors allowed back in the courthouse. They they hadn't been there for months, but there's a huge backlog from the COVID pandemic. I mean, there there were trials that were supposed to happen last summer that are sitting around that haven't happened yet. There were you know hearings from last fall that still have to happen. So you, you've got a backlog to work through before you get to January six cases. But what's more, this has totally choked the D.C. federal court. All of these cases, no matter if the defendant was from Wisconsin, Nevada, Texas, or Florida, all the cases go through the D.C. courthouse. Hmm. We have 460 cases so far. Could be 100 more coming. This is a courthouse that's accustomed to having 300 criminal cases in an entire year. We are in June, and we're almost double that. It's just going to go slowly. And uh, they're still looking for some folks, right? I mean, they ha- they have not actually found everyone they are looking for. So there are more charges coming, correct? I would expect dozens more. Dozens. The, the prosecutors have indicated could be 100 more. But there's the big one still. The big one hasn't happened yet. Who the hell dropped off the pipe bombs Yeah. outside the RNC and DNC headquarters? Those were live, active pipe bombs that the police said would have caused great destruction and were, by the way, a effective diversion of police that day. The police have acknowledged that as well. They, they, as of two weeks ago, not only had there been no arrests, the police chief in D.C. acknowledged to Congress there are no suspects. Hmm. That seems odd. So let's take a step back. I mean, it's easy to get you know into into the, the nitty gritty here, but you've been following this, you've been reading about this, you, you you know a lot about these people. So I guess the question is, I'm sure you've thought about this. Who are these people? And, and whether you break them down into categories, because, okay, I'm, I'm sure that there are some people who might have just been bystanders, who just showed up for a peaceful demonstration, who had nothing to do with it. And then you have the hardcore. Do you, do you break them into categories in your mind? Um, you know, the, the different gradations, because I mean, obviously, you know, part of the spin of this is that there are certain Republicans in Congress that want to focus on the touristy, uh, innocent bystanders and ignore the people who were beating police officers with flags. So there's a continuum, right? I mean, they're not all the same thing. Yeah. And I think that's even true for the people who went into the Capitol that day. Those who you know, unlawfully entered the Capitol, there were some who were physically destructive, there were some just milling about, taking pictures. And there were some who were accused of assaulting police. So the people being held pre-trial, and they could be in pre-trial detention for months or a year before having their day in court, um, they're the ones who tend to have been accused of more violent behavior against other people. You know, assaulting an officer with a bat, with a with a hockey stick, with a sharpened flagpole, or with pepper spray, chemical spray. Um, there are others who broke things or took things. We we saw a man in court earlier this week who was accused of stealing a bunch of papers that were outside an office in the Capitol and putting them in his backpack. I and mean, that was that was different than other people who were just milling about or screaming you know, insanity you know, about Trump or about the election or about this is our house or you don't belong here, we belong here. Yeah, there's a real continuum. But what I'm looking for here are patterns. And this is not a monolithic group. None of this happens in a vacuum. But an overwhelming number of the people at the insurrection and charged were men. Hard to escape that. Mm-hmm. Um, many of them were from certain clusters in certain states. Well, Pennsylvania has a lot of defendants. So does New York. That's close to D.C. Not a big surprise. Texas, Florida, a lot of defendants. Very populated states, um, very mobilized. But what's most striking is how many people have military ties. 
Um, mm. Dozens and dozens with some form of military experience, some at least one, an active duty U.S. Marine Corps commissioned officer from Quantico, Virginia. Um, in the military ties are troubling for a lot of reasons, Charlie. I mean, you, you want our military to be loyal to country and loyal to the law, but also military comes with training. And we saw some of these groups seem to have a lot of training, a lot of understanding as to how to equip yourself, how to follow this law, but also be equipped to, 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 to cause harm. Just a lot of people ready for the moment in, in military training can provide that. So the subtext, a lot of this is this is not just a discrete incident that occurred in the, fa- in, in the past, but it's ongoing. What is your sense of the threat of domestic violence from many of these nationalist groups like the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers? Uh, you know, in the wake of, of January 6th, are they chagrined? Um, are they emboldened? Going forward, how great is the threat? You know, what scared the hell out of me is what Jamie Raskin, the congressman from Maryland, said at one of the hearings a few weeks ago. He says, the, historically, the best indication, or the most accurate indication of there's going to be a coup is a recent failed coup. Mm-hmm. That's that. historically how the pattern goes. You have a failed coup. It, it It's it's almost the, uh, the <sighs> antecedent to another coup. What I note, um, going back to those Oath Keepers, in some of the many, many court filings in their cases that we've read through, some of them are accused of having what they call a bug out plan. If things go south, here's where we go and here's what we do. In fact, one of them is accused of having a, a plan to hide out in the mountains of Kentucky um, with survivalist gear in the mountains of Kentucky because she b- believed it would be uh, drone proof that the federal government couldn't come find them. Great. So if they're creating bug out plans, those are things you, you have as a group for multiple attempts uh, against your government. You don't do that for a one-time plan. You do that because you're, you're, you're planning on a continuum to go against your government. You know, in retrospect, um, the, the story about the, the militia groups that were targeting uh, the Michigan governor seems to be an undercovered story or an underappreciated story that you had that you had, what what was it, 10 of them who were talking about uh, kidnapping Governor Gretchen Whitmer, you know, possibly killing her. Um, and that should have been like a warning that this is out there and that it is organized, that we're not dealing with just a couple of lone wolf gunmen or some people with psychological issues, that this is brewing out there. And and yeah. yet there, there seems to be a real reluctance to understand guys this is this is not going away. This this might have been a rehearsal for what's coming, because everything that led up to that seems to have intensified in the in the days and weeks afterwards. And with the exception of law enforcement and, and the courts, there there certainly hasn't been a political or media pushback against those attitudes. It seems like a real warning sign to me. It felt like things went yeah. to the next level when we heard about the the plot against Gretchen Whitmer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's no secret for those of us who cover the federal court system closely that there's been an increase, a pretty steady increase in the last few years of cases involving threats against public officials, you know, be it a verbal threat, a social media threat, somebody shows up at the door of the office, says something that's improper. Um, we see that. That tends to be a singular person and a singular event making a singular threat. It's the coordination that really does bring it to the next level. Like you just described in Michigan, like we saw with some of these clusters of groups January 6th, the coordination obviously should concern federal law enforcement, but it's also concerning the judges. As I said earlier, the judges are more hesitant 
to release some of these defendants because of the ongoing stoking of the fire by people who deny the election. That event in Wisconsin on June 12th is not going to help anybody who wants to get released from jail, who's charged with the January 6th insurrection, because there's a concern not just about the continued denialism of the election, the fact that some of what happened January 6th was coordinated. It was groups moving in concert. I mean, there are people who are cynically manipulating the lie, who know that they're lying to raise money or whatever. But, but you know, as you've pointed out, a lot of these people believe this and that every time you have an event like the one in Wisconsin, more people will believe that somehow their country is is at risk. And many of them are, are quite sincere, maybe deluded, but quite sincere in believing that this is that that they are facing an existential threat to American democracy. And I guess I ask people to think if you actually believe that, what would you be prepared to do? I mean, that is the predicate for violence and and violence becomes a I won't say use the word reasonable, but certainly an understandable reaction if you think this is taking this is taking place and that's going to be stoked by events like what's going to happen later this month here in Wisconsin. Yeah, I, I think it's broadly believed and the reason why we all seem to underestimate how many people believe the big lie is because the people who believe it tend not to engage with mainstream media. You can't put on the nightly news at night and hear a lot of those voices because they don't want to talk to us. Um, the, if I knocked on the door of somebody who had a Trump or a Gadsden flag outside their house with my my NBC logo and my microphone, they may be more hesitant to talk to me than other people because they tend to be distrustful of what they call the mainstream media. So their voices aren't heard. I think this is something Trump capitalized in 2020 is he, he, he sensed and knew there were a lot of people in his camp who we just didn't hear from often. Ah, that scares me. There, there, there are people who truly you know, believe that, that there's a fake president or deni- uh, that, they, that the election was truly schemed and rigged. And, and I don't know who they are or where they are. So this raises the question. You spend your time immersed in these court cases, knowing what these people did, the, the language they use, the conduct they engaged in. You've seen the videos, the still pictures, everything. What was your reaction when you started to see Republicans in Congress minimizing it saying oh come on it wasn't that bad these were this was a largely peaceful protest this was just typical tourists going through the capitol what was your reaction you know living this day day you know hour by hour day by day again i i wonder if they didn't just can't google something you google search (laughs) this you can see some of the more you know serious or more sobering, you know, allegations just by getting on your browser for a minute. But as somebody who's lived and worked in Washington, D.C. For, for almost my entire adult life, we, we you get used to the concept that the rest of the country has a caricature of Washington. They mm-hmm. think of Washington as the place where the fat cats and the, the you know, two powerful people operate and live, and they just don't like us. And I think back home for a lot of these members of Congress who deny the insurrection, they think they're scoring points with constituents who don't care for Washington, D.C. And don't as my, don't mind what happened as much as I do, as somebody who's worked in the Capitol. And it's jaded and it's craven, but I, I think you never lose out with your constituents by criticizing Washington or taking a hard line on Washington. And I think that's just a symptom of it. So I was going to I was going to close by asking you what you're going to be watching for, but I think you've already answered that. Uh, keeping an eye on the the Oath Keepers and whether there are plea deals, you think that's where the action is right now going forward? That's the heart. That, that's the whole ball game. The Oath Keepers face the most serious charges, and they're the ones the Feds are saying plea deals are coming. And if plea deals are coming, 
It's because they think the Oath Keepers can provide something. And that's, that's, that's what everyone wants to know. Who can they provide? Who can they flip? It's, it's, it's really the question, Charlie, of all this. Was this an organic mob mentality, spur of the moment thing? Or did, was it somebody's big idea to send an outnumbered force into the Capitol with legal arms to overpower the government and stop the counting of the Electoral College? Was this a grand conspiracy? And if it was a grand conspiracy, and we find out who's behind it, the Oath Keepers might be the passageway to it. Would, would that include people in political office? We haven't talked about that, whether whether any of these, because I, I haven't seen any indication that any of these cases have touched on any acting members of Congress or the administration yet. Yeah, our, our friend Barbara Comstock messaged me that question the other day. So mm-hmm. when do when do we find out what members of Congress were involved? Right. It, it, they're going to be careful. The, the Justice That's Department true. is being judicious with these filings. What they don't say is important. If and it's a big if, if they were going down that road, I don't think they'd let any tea leaves out for us to read anytime soon. Scott McFarland, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Scott is an uh, investigative reporter with NBC Washington who has been covering January 6th. You can follow him online on Twitter or see him on NBC or MSNBC. Scott, thanks for spending so much time with me today. Thank you, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.